Welcome to Factually. I'm Adam Conover. Thank you so much for joining me on the show once again. I'm talking to you from beautiful Brooklyn, New York. I'm staying at a Fairfield Inn and Suites here, uh, having a wonderful time walking around the city that I miss so much. I just ate an everything bagel with scallion cream cheese. It was delicious. Later, I'm going to go to Katz's. It's, uh, I, I'm, I'm living my best life here, okay? You understand? I'm having a great time. And I, if you live in New York, or if you live in the surrounding area, please come see me at the Bell House on Saturday. I'm doing my new hour. I would love to talk to you. If you listen to the podcast, please come say hi at the meet and greet after the show. And of course, if you live in San Diego or Portland, I'm headed there soon, too. And look, if I didn't hit you on the tour so far... Well, uh, I just talked to my agent. We're talk we talked about the future of the tour. I'm hopeful I'm going to get to go to a lot more cities very soon. So stay tuned if I didn't come to you. I'm still going to try to. One of these days I'm going to cover the whole country. And by the way, if you, if you like what I do, and I, I thank you for liking it, um, please consider supporting this show on Patreon. If you go to patreon.com slash adamconover for just five bucks a month or 20% less than that if you sign up for a year at a time, you will get access to our live Patreon book club. You'll get ad-free episodes of this very podcast. That's right, every single episode, ad-free. And uh, you get to join our wonderful Discord community and chat with like-minded folks about video games, books you're reading, everything under the sun. It's a really cool way just to hang out online and uh, chat about interesting ideas with some fun people. Head to patreon.com slash adamconover. Now, on the show this week, we're going to talk about comedy. So I do comedy, as you know, if you listen to the show or if you've seen me live. Uh, and I loved comedy my whole life. You know, it's been the North Star of all of my creative enjoyments and ambitions throughout my entire lifetime. And one of the strange things about comedy is that uh, no one has ever really taken it seriously, for obvious reasons. Comedy is not a very serious art form. Comedy does not take itself very seriously. But... For most of my life, people never talked about comedy as being something that was at all important or even worth discussing, worth writing you know, a, a review of in the paper, worth uh, writing an academic paper analyzing it, worth thinking about in any clear, consistent way at all. I mean, there were great comics who influenced culture, George Carlin, Richard Pryor, folks like that. But, you know, there was also a lot of watermelon smashing, and that's what most people thought comedy was. But in the mid to late 2000s, that started to change. With the rise of political comedy shows like The Daily Show and all of the emphasis on Saturday Night Live during the 2008 election and the Colbert Report, this idea began to grow that comedy was a satirical force whose power could topple dictators and reveal our hypocrisies. Comedy became seen as this kind of vital moral force. And in 2010, this trend almost sort of became a political movement with Jon Stewart and Stephen Colbert's rally to restore sanity and or fear. This was an actual rally that was covered on C-SPAN and every major news network, and it had an actual political goal to reduce partisan bickering and actually get things done generally. I'm, I mean, that's, a, that's an oversimplification, but you know, it was a real cultural moment around these ideas. 
But, you know, looking back on it, it uh, seems pretty clear that it failed. <laughs> I mean, the world of 2022 clearly has more fear and less sanity than 2010 did, and it's hard to argue otherwise. Jon Stewart spent the better part of 15 years mercilessly mocking Fox News and Fox and Friends, but, you know, that show is still on the air, and he is not. And Colbert is still on television doing his thing every single night, but no one really believes anymore that Colbert is destroying Trump with his impression at 11.30 p.m. on a Wednesday. In retrospect, it's apparent that we expected too much from comedy. Comedy can enlighten, it can reveal, it can entertain, but maybe it can't actually change the world in a real way that matters. Not the way that politicians and generals and armies do anyway. But on the other hand, it's not as though comedy does nothing. It's not as though it's contentless. It's not as though it has no effect on the world around it. I mean, there are comedians who, when criticized for, you know, sucking, they'll say something like, ah, it's just jokes, man. I'm just trying to make people laugh. Doesn't mean anything. And look, uh, they can say that if they want, but in my opinion, if you're a comic and you say that, you're either a shitty comic or you're lying. Comedy works because it expresses a truth about the world as seen by the person speaking. And the audience laughs because they recognize that truth in a way that takes them by surprise. And this is true even when comedy is cloaked in layers of irony. You know, when a comic like Anthony Jeselnik, who's incredible, makes a joke about killing a baby, you laugh because the premise, the truth that he's expressing is that one shouldn't kill babies, right? But like any art form, comedy can also be used to express ideas that not everybody agrees about or that most people would consider wrong or harmful. I mean... <laughs> There is such a thing as racist jokes, we've all heard them, and sometimes a racist joke is told not in an ironic way where the premise is that racism is wrong. Sometimes a racist joke is told by someone who thinks it's funny because they believe that racism is true, and the audience laughs at it because they also agree that racism is true. There's a long history of comedy like this in America, and I'm not the kind of person who says that we should censor it, but we need to accept that it exists. Contrary to what some very stupid commentators used to say in the late 2000s, comedy is not inherently liberal. It's not inherently anything. For every possible opinion, political affiliation, and taste, there is a joke that confirms it, and there is a comic out there telling that joke, regardless of whether or not it is true, helpful, or harmful. Comedy is not inherently on a side. But... People have trouble seeing that because our national conversation about comedy is so stunted. And the reason it is is because not enough people spend the time to really dig into what comedy is and how it works in our society. I mean, it is one of the most elemental art forms, right? Laughter is an automatic human response to certain types of information presented in a certain way. We just do it. It's part of what it means to be a human. And yet we understand so little about it and what it is for in our society. But there are a few people now who are finally doing the research on what this art form actually does, and we have a couple of them on the show today. Matt Sinkowitz is an associate professor of communication at Boston College, and Nick Marks is a professor of film and media studies at Colorado State. Together, they wrote That's Not Funny, How the Right Makes Comedy Work for Them, and you can pick up that book at our special bookshop at factuallypod.com books, but before you do that, listen to this interview with them, because it was absolutely fascinating for me as a comic to talk to some people who have spent so much time studying and understanding what comedy is and how it works. Please welcome Matt Sinkowitz and Nick Marks. Nick and Matt, thank you so much for being on the show. 
Oh, thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. So, look, uh, I'm a comedian. Uh, I'm also someone who likes to read a lot. I like to read a lot of media commentary and, and theory and stuff like that. And so it's kind of bothered me that comedy is not a topic that is particularly well covered in academia or, frankly, anywhere else, even in uh, journalism. Um, I remember being, you know, when I was in college looking for like the best philosophical work on comedy and finding like a couple books by some really old philosophers who like wrote analyses of like street jokes <laughs> and like yep. what philosophy could tell us about those. Like that's not very relevant to comedy today. I'm curious, why, uh, why do you write about comedy? What, what do you think is interesting and valuable about investigating it? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And it's one uh, that you do have to answer uh, every so often. Uh, you know, somebody will ask, well, how can you write about comedy when there's this and that happening in the world? Uh, there's a number of ways to go about answering it. Uh, one, it's it's fun. It's a good job. It's it's fun to to <laughs> write and talk about comedy and watch comedy. Uh, but there's another layer, of course. Right. Uh, so many of our serious ideas of our most important thoughts get sort of buried or packaged in comedy in different places. You know, comedy can and I, and I love when comedy is just for fun. But it's also a place where serious political ideas, serious personal ideas and uh, psychological ideas, you know, they all come through comedy as well. And you're right. There's a lot of like old dusty books about comedy and some of them are great. I mean, reading Freud, you know, unpack jokes about, you know, dicks and whatever is, is still fun. Uh, but, you know, 100 percent, it's it's not a place where, uh, you know, sort of the most serious of academics tend to go. Maybe maybe I just outed us as not the most serious, but we do take comedy really seriously. Uh, and, you know, it's that combination. It's fun, but it's also a place where these deep ideas kind of come rushing in in surprising and interesting ways. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's this thing that comedians will say sometimes, and it annoys me a little bit. It's like, oh, comedians, we're the modern day philosophers. Literally, I think, mm. I think it might have been Chris Rock. I saw a quote from him recently, and he said, we don't have philosophers anymore. Instead, we have comedians. And I was like, well, we actually do have philosophers. I, I interview them on this podcast all the time. There's many. We've interviewed Quill Kukla and other working philosophers on this show. But this is a claim that comedians make to be doing you know, philosophy or dealing with ideas on stage. And I, in fact, when I started doing comedy, I remember I had this sense I wanted to go to grad school for philosophy, and instead I became a comedian, and I remember thinking, oh, I can work with ideas in kind of the same way uh, that I did, uh, you know, as an undergrad, you know, maybe doing comedy going forward. I can, like, talk about real things, um, and that's true. I do feel that I do that, but almost nobody actually talks about what comedians are actually saying. <laughs> like, almost nobody actually, like, pulls it apart and says, okay, what are the ideas here? Um, why do you think that is? I think uh, notoriously, as you mentioned with uh, the, the uh, Chris Rock example, comedians hate to be sort of pigeonholed. They, they hate to have their ideas sort of uh, interpreted back to them for very justifiable reasons. It supposedly kills the joke when you overexplain it or have uh, academics like, like us uh, try to explain it. I think where Matt and I come in and where we see our role as a sort of explainer of jokes or an analyzer of comedy is to... Uh, understand what's being said and attach that to how it circulates culturally and, and economically. So we think about why it is that jokes and comedy and joking have become such an influential force, uh, not only culturally, so shaping the way that we talk to one another online or, or political discourse, as, as Matt was alluding to, but also that entire, you know, film franchises and cable channels and streaming outlets can build brand identities around uh, comedy as well. 
So it's tough for us as analysts of it to sit back and sort of isolate things from those contexts. We think those bigger contexts are just as important often as the the words and the jokes themselves. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's it's really fascinating because the other thing you also notice your comedians say is that jokes have no deeper content to them. They'll say, hey, it's just a joke. No, it doesn't matter. We're just joking here. We're, we, comedians only say things to get a laugh. And that also seems transparently untrue to me, that like jokes do have a context and a meaning and an impact behind them, whether or not the comic even knows that they do. Uh, there's there's a lot there that there's a lot of meaning that is being expressed and being given to people that's so rarely pulled apart. So what do you find the largest trends uh, in comedy have been over the last couple decades? What What is the impact that you feel it's having? I know that's a big question, but mm. where should we start? Yeah, well, um, you know, so we've been writing recently about uh, sort of the, the role that it's played in politics and sort of, you know, like real sort of straightforward politics. We're thinking about political satire, uh, the impact that comedy has had on coalitions of, you know, uh, left-wing Americans, right-wing Americans, centrist Americans, uh, and so on. I mean, I think that that's part of a bigger story. I think to answer your question, uh, the number one trend that I would point to is one that is not unique to comedy, but has really interesting ways that it comes out in comedy. And that's just the narrowing of audiences. And whether that's mm. narrowing of audiences for news coverage, for, uh, you know, Netflix, like everybody gets their own individual Netflix show, right? As opposed to, uh, you know, sort of these broadly watched things. Uh, so it plays out everywhere. But one place where it plays out really interestingly is in comedy, uh, where uh, whether it's political comedy, you have comedy more and more aimed towards smaller and smaller segments of that political spectrum. And then also that goes on the taste level too. Um, you know, there's more... Uh, opportunity now for really experimental comedy. So, um, you know, uh, you've been involved in some of that yourself. Uh, uh, you know, things, uh, streaming shows, uh, uh, like I've always wanted to be, uh, to meet a Ryan Seacrest type and, you, you know, something like BoJack Horseman. Um, <laughs> Thank you. you know, I don't think that would have made it on, on Fox uh, in, in 1990, but it certainly was a great fit and a big hit on Netflix. And part of that has to do with this sort of ability to target an audience more tightly. I think that a lot of great experimental stuff and interesting and new stuff comes out of that. That's a big headline. But also you get really niche stuff that can uh, play off of people's particular interests. And some of those interests, you know, uh, as we write about in our, our most recent book, can be, uh, you know, uh, can be spaces where, where a certain brand of offensive comedy becomes very popular amongst a small group of people or, or sort of uh, fringe political ideas can be packaged in comedy as well. So I guess the, to answer the big question, it would be the sort of micro or, or at least smaller targeting of comedy in a way that both changes the kind of uh, experimental comedy you can get, but also sort of political targeting and other ways where, where you don't speak to a broad group, you speak to sort of smaller groups. Yeah. I mean, there's been this big shift I felt in my own career from, you know, broadcasting to narrowcasting where, uh, you know, when I got started as a comedy fan, I was just interested in what was on Comedy Central, yeah. uh, late night shows, things like that. Those are going to very broad audiences. Now, the late night shows that still exist sort of feel like they're dinosaurs and that appealing to that many people all at once while still sort of like a wonderful thing to try to do is becoming less and less possible. Um, one of the effects of that seems to be the budgets are going down everywhere, that the less audience you're reaching, the harder it is to, you know, make a make a comedy show that that costs a million dollars an episode to make. Instead, you know, everyone's narrow casting to a small audience on TikTok for free. Um, but let's talk about your new book. Your new book is uh, about uh, right wing comedy. Um, a really interesting thing that I noticed is that 
about 10 years ago, maybe a little bit more than that, you know, people used to say regularly that there was no such thing as right wing comedy. <laughs> people would say, oh, there's, you know, John Stewart and people like that. This is like sort of more overtly liberal comedy. Um, but, you know, occasionally Fox News would try to have a right wing comedy show that would fail very quickly. Mm -hmm. And people would say, ah, see, right wing comedy is just impossible. And there'd be theories about that, that, you know, liberal comedy is about punching up and right wing comedy would be about punching down and that it would therefore never be funny. Um, and I remember at the time going, well, that's clearly not true. There is <laughs> comedy that's like inherently has a conservative or reactionary or, or backwards looking or whatever you want to say. There's comedy that I would say, this feels right wing in its undercurrents to me, but it was, it seemed to be invisible to people. Um, I'm not, I don't think many people are saying that anymore. What has changed about the comedy ecosystem that has led to, you know, you guys writing an entire book about right wing comedy? Yeah, so uh, two important things. The first that Matt mentioned and that, that you've, you've mentioned, uh, the, the narrow casting of audiences. So we got used to this uh, increasingly kind of fragmented media space being occupied by smaller and smaller portions of uh, comedy viewerships, uh, such that it kind of left out in the cold an entire sort of 40% of Americans who identified as politically conservative and right wing. All of our mainstream comedy institutions, be they late night shows, SNL, The Daily Show, had those sort of left liberal skewing politics. And nobody had really tried to court that, that smaller segment of conservative viewers. You mentioned the um, half hour news hour is the failed Fox News uh, Daily Show from 2007. Mm -hmm. And I think many on the left, Matt and I consider ourselves uh, among that group held that up as evidence of saying, see, they tried it, it didn't work, therefore, comedy has this inherent liberal bias. Well, as things in the media ecosystem change and as audiences continue to get fragmented, they're still left underserved by this uh, comedy programming. Lots of people try in the interim until eventually something hits, and a whole bunch of somethings end up hitting, as Matt and I describe in, the, in um, That's Not Funny. So you've got Greg Gutfeld on Fox News, who is an out-and-out late-night uh, comedy host, on par with Fallon and Colbert, and indeed on many nights is beating them in the ratings, hmm. all, all the way down to uh, you know sort of YouTube streamers, obscure podcasters, who, while they're not on the same level ideologically necessarily as Gutfeld and Rogan, go to some pretty dark, ugly places. And you can get there by listening to the more mainstream voices. No, yeah, that's right. So there's that, that whole shift that takes place in the, in the media realm. And then, of course, there is the political shift that's taken place in the United States over the past decade or so. Um, you know, uh, it's, I mean, we could all point to one guy. We could talk about Trump and sort of what Trump represents. So we could talk more broadly about polarization and these sorts of ideas. So just as the media has become more fractured, so has American politics. Uh, one, I think, become uh, you know polarized in some really significant way, uh, and also really redefined what conservatism is or right wingness is in the United States. Um, you know, from a cultural perspective, when we look at a character like Trump, uh, he doesn't remind us of the the you know first Bush or second Bush in terms of sort of cultural approach. He doesn't remind us of uh, uh, sort of the National Review buttoned up style of conservatism or, or right wing American politics. So just as the media system is looking for, you know, sort of smaller groups, smaller audiences, making it uh, perfectly viable to 
uh, you know, go after uh, this right wing comedy space that hasn't been been approached. We also have an overt effort uh, on parts of the American right uh, to become more culturally engaged and also to give up on some of the um, sort of cultural conservatisms that held back certain approaches to comedy. Yeah, I think about like the conservative politicians that I grew up, you know, that were made fun of on The Daily Show when I first started yeah. watching it, like the early 2000s. And it's like the Jesse Helms or the Strom Thurmond types, you know, it's the it's like these very old sort of yeah. uh, stolid, uh, you know, decrepit politicians who didn't know how to crack a joke and they weren't funny. Uh, but the weird thing, it took me a long time to realize after Trump was running, but Trump was funny to the people who liked him and still is. Like, yeah. I think about how, sure, do you remember he, he he hosted or he spoke at the Al Smith dinner, which is like mm-hmm. a political dinner, kind of similar to the White House Correspondents Dinner where like he had to read prepared jokes and he like bombed very poorly. He did a very bad job. And of course he never hosted, he never appeared at the White House Correspondents Dinner, which is like this opportunity where politicians normally make jokes. But that that's a form of comedy that's like, a late night show, like a monologue style joke. And he would never did that. But when he like made fun of the disabled reporter and he like did that little face and made that like little gesture that a whole lot of people said, Hey, that's not funny to like the title of your book. A lot of people said that's offensive. Well, at the time, like a lot of it, the crowd laughed. <laughs> like yeah. the crowd he was speaking to laughed when he did that. They thought it was very funny. And so did a lot of the folks watching at home. And I, I, it took me a couple of years to realize, but I looked back and said, oh no, that is, that is, he is funny to his audience. Um, not to me, but, mm. uh, I, and, and so it took me a while to realize that that was, oh, that's the conservative movement, like starting to use comedy in a real way. Yeah, no, 100%. Yep. I mean, he's, he's an insult comic, right? I mean, that's, which is a tried and true <laughs> form of comedy, right? That's Don Rickles. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, a lot of that is, the, and, and, you know, I mean, I like Don Rickles, but sometimes it's, it's just funny to be brash and be, be uh transgressive. Right. And uh, he'll do that. Yeah. Uh, he does crowd work, right. Uh, you know, yeah. he, he, he will uh, point to people in the crowd he doesn't like and, and sort of mock them in a way that a stand up comedian might in order to, uh, uh, you know, neutralize a threat. And he also is just plain, uh, you know, from a, I guess, I mean, this is a judgmental, it was often just, his speeches are weird and strange and they offer opportunities, uh, you know, for him to go in and out of things that people find funny, but also for comedians like Greg Gutfeld to play with his words, right? He, he is a, mm-hmm. a, a sort of, uh, cultural figure, uh, that, that, leaves things ambiguous intentionally and playfulness is part of that story. You can think of like Kofif, if you remember that ridiculous yeah. moment, right? Kofi, where he, Kofife. <laughs> right, whatever it is, right? Where, I mean, this is just a blunder, right? Where he tweets out some, some vagary, right? But he sees it as an opportunity for a joke, right? He sees yeah. it as an opportunity to say, I'm going to take this seriously because, you know, that's playful. Again, uh, none of us, I think, here probably think he's a funny figure, right? But he's finding opportunities to go against the norms of the system to invite people to be playful, to interpret him playfully, uh, and to be plain mean. And you put that combination together, it looks an awful lot like a comic. And one of the one of the bigger projects of the book is to get our fellow left liberals, especially, to move away from that initial reflexive reaction to it of that's not funny that's just being mean right and to understand the bigger context of uh the political climate he's operating in that as you said he is being funny for his sort of in group for the people that are on his team already and to sort of fortify the bonds among them 
So his is very much a humor of superiority, as Matt said. They very quickly identify uh, a common enemy, whether it's the loony libs or Rosie O'Donnell or the disabled uh, reporter, whatever the case is, and we're going to punch at them. You're on my team. Stand behind me. We as liberals might not see that as, uh, you know, the smart sort of ambiguous referential satire that we got used to via Jon Stewart on The Daily Show for many years, but it is that same comedic function of very quickly creating in-groups and out-groups. Yeah. Uh, let's talk for a second, since you mentioned Jon Stewart. Again, I came of age as a comic. You know, Jon Stewart was like my Johnny Carson figure, is what I always say. Like, he was the guy who sort of opened the possibility for me of what you could do in comedy. That you could do comedy that talks about the real world in a smart sort of honest way uh, that act actually in many cases ended up moving the needle of culture in, in many ways. But that created a certain you know, set of ideas about what comedy was capable of. Satire became very hot in the media sphere, especially around 2008 to 2012. You know, uh, Tina Fey, Sarah Palin, yeah. and, and all of that. There was a big media moment around satire as an idea that created a certain set of uh, you know, assumptions about what comedy was for and what it could do. And I think a lot of us look back at that time and go, man, was that, was any of that correct? <laughs> mm. You know, like did, did Tina Fey, was Tina Fey actually making fun of Sarah Palin or was she playing into what Sarah Palin was doing? Um, mm. I think we're all starting to have those thoughts. Um, and, you know, often I, I think when I look back at Jon Stewart retiring, um, to me, it almost looks like he retired because he failed that he, mm. he spent, you know, 15 years hammering against Fox news and eventually looked around and went, wait, Fox and Friends is still getting the highest ratings in cable, no matter what I do. Um, and that, that's sometimes how I think about it, right? Mm. Not, to, not to denigrate him at all. Um, but how do you look back at those sort of set of ideas that developed around, you know, this very liberal form of satire uh, in, you know, the, the late 2000s, early 2010s? Yeah, I think uh, I'll defend the Colbert Stewart generation of like, you know, post Iraq war sort of uh, liberal comedy in the in the 2000s as extremely important. Right. He was adept at and showed audiences how to be critical of media. So that's the, the first and mm -hmm. the most enduring contribution. I think he he taught audiences is to say, look at this thing. Now, look at this thing. They contradict one another. You're being lied to or this is bullshit. Yeah. Right. I think the failure of Stewart and maybe why we look back, not necessarily on him, but as on our younger selves as kind of putting too much faith in that, is that I think many folks, many liberals, myself included, conflated watching Stewart and Colbert with actually doing a politics, right? Mm -hmm. You know, just like posting and laughing at him and, you know, washing my hands of the, for the day saying, well, that's that. Now, like, we've got yeah. a black man as president, progressive politics will continue along this demographic mm -hmm. line. And we won because we're the funny ones. But we weren't watching all along that right-wing forces, especially online, are watching those shows too and learning about how to speak comedically, how to sort of insert uh, humorous discourse into the political realm. I'll let Matt maybe sort of tack on a, a additional. Yeah, there. no, I mean, I think you're exactly on it, Adam, in that this is the formative moment of, of what we call the liberal complex about comedy. Uh, certainly there's long-standing ideas that there should be a relationship between comedy and sort of, uh, well, let's use an academic word, counter hegemony against uh, within comedy that, you know, some people call that punching up this sort of thing. That's long-standing. 
But there was this perfect storm in the early 2000s that you're pointing to, where you had a media industry, which was extremely excited about uh, put, using comedy to address this hard to reach group of kind of left liberal, mostly young males. Comedy Central, they were all about this. You also had a mm-hmm. president in George W. Bush who gave plenty of opportunities to, uh, to uh, you know, part of his brand was that he was mockable in, in some way. You had these two transcendent talents. It's really much more than two, the whole Daily Show crew in that early 2000s is just uh, i mean just a murderer's row like just an incredible group of talent all of this stuff comes together in the early 2000s and it does i think you you got it right it culminates in sarah palin like uh sort of this character was almost impossible to believe how mockable she was when 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 things started this moment was the moment where i think a lot of people who consider themselves liberal said ah okay this this is so successful because liberals are funny because liberals have a sense of humor and conservatives don't and, you know, we could argue whether that psychology has any validity to it, but the context made it look that way in a much more forceful way than it ultimately would. Uh, what it meant was that there was an opportunity for the liberal world to create satire and there was a head start because all of the other institutions, the SNLs, the, night, the late night shows, all of them had this sort of, you know, kind of liberal-ish left center bent, right? This moment comes, The Daily Show is a phenomenon, Colbert is, it rolls into it. And then there's a, a desire for people our age, I think we're roughly, you know, in the same ballpark on age, to say, ah, this defines it. Let's freeze this. Let's assume we own this space and uh, we don't have to worry about it anymore. And then as time moves on, the media industry changes, the, the, the right wing of America adapts new strategies. They get rid, the right wants to get rid of its stodgy uh, uh, persona. And then all of a sudden, you know, it's not just that, that uh, uh, there are these successful shows from the past, but they become a blueprint and things that people from across the spectrum, from the, the center to the right to the far right, start, you know, using the tricks of The Daily Show. And, and Fox, which yeah. failed so badly to do this, like in 2007, they drip and drop it into their schedule. They start adding comedic stuff for the last decade yeah. or so, and they catch up because it's not an inherent thing about liberals. It's a set of circumstances. Yeah, I mean, when you watch uh, a Fox News, watch any one of their opinion hosts, they're making fun of everything and everybody all the time. At the very least, they're doing the kind of comedy-adjacent stuff that, you know, I think of like a Rachel Maddow-type host, yeah. where there's always a little bit of a smirk and a little bit of making fun of, uh, the teabaggers, like that kind of yeah. thing, um, that, like, they're all just doing all the... T- Tucker Carlson laughs all the time on a show, and I believe he makes his audience laugh. But look, I, I want to talk about what the essential differences are between what we might call conservative and liberal or right-wing left-wing comedy but we got to take a quick break we'll be right back with more nick marks and matt sinkowitz okay we're back with nick and matt talking about comedy so i want to ask uh sometimes as a comedian when i watch another comic i get a sense of i feel that this joke is maybe a little bit I don't know if I want to say right wing. I don't know if I want to say conservative, but you know, you can sort of feel the differences uh, on a on a really basic level in the comedy. I'm curious if you know you have any analysis of you know a joke that might not have any overt political content. You're not making fun of Ted Cruz or whatever, or talking mm-hmm. about climate change, um, but you know if there are sort of deeper patterns in what you might call left wing or right wing comedy or uh, anything in that world. Yeah, I mean, it, it's of course difficult when you're not. I mean, everybody's gonna gonna argue with you. We, we, we've got a book that we, we describe it as a book about right wing comedy, uh, but you know, it's got a range of stuff in it. 
and what it means to be right wing is 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 a range of ideas that have some connections and some differences. Um, so it becomes difficult to sort of blanket uh, target, you know, sort of what defines one or the other. We tend to look at it sort of as an industrial question. Like there's a group of people who are, are broadly are, you know, that their comedy is, is against the libs and they appear in each other's podcasts and they retweet each other and they might not agree on everything, but they sort of work in a constellation. So that's how we define right wing comedy, but that's kind of a, mm. how they do business as opposed to how they do comedy kind of question, right? We're talking about how guys appear on, you know, uh, you know, somebody from this part of the right wing world appears on the podcast of somebody from a different part of the right wing world. That said, I think we can definitely talk about types of comedy that, that do, uh, yeah, that, that's sort of like uh, either either if you dig deep, you can see the ideology or maybe it's, it's something a little bit vaguer. One thing that we point to in the book is, is something uh, we call paleo comedy, which is comedy that is not necessarily, uh, uh, you know, about a political issue. But the format of it is like is like a, is like a, a form of comedy that, that that's from a previous era. I, I think I know what you're talking if I can offer an example. Yeah. Uh, Tim Allen, who yeah. is a great 100%. comic, um, uh, you know, been working for decades, uh, is also a conservative politically. We know that yeah. for, he's very vocal about that. Um, and he did. I used to watch Home Improvement growing up. Um, mm -hmm. He has his show Last Man Standing, which yeah. I think has been on for many, many years now. And it is a specifically it's a home improvement style sitcom. Yeah. It is in it. a format that people now identify as being. You know, people say this is retro, um, mm -hmm. but the show is very, very uh, popular. And it also has a little bit of a political valence to it, right? Because it was canceled yeah. by one network and it was picked up by Fox, I think. That's right. And they saw it as explicitly, hold on a second, there's a, I don't want to say red state audience, but maybe, mm -hmm. I don't know how they thought of it, but there's an audience that still wants this kind of thing. Yeah. And I think we can look at that and say, all right, there's an overall, this feels kind of conservative conservative yeah. as a media product. And the paleo word certainly comes in there. Yeah, that's that's one yeah, of our that, key examples. Oh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's sorry to that's do it exactly for you. right. No, no. Tim Allen is the example par excellence of, of a paleo comedy, somebody who the, the, the jokes themselves can kind of go any way, but the, the packaging, the form of how he delivers them asks you to look back to a pure, simpler time when things were just as I like them, when men and women had their gender roles set, mm -hmm. when there were four cameras on this soundstage and we're going to add canned laughter later on, right? And yeah. so that form is supposed to signify industrially, Matt used that word, to, to audiences, to network executives, to advertisers, that we're going to go after a slightly older, more conservative skewing audience because their values align with watching this type of culture. Whereas the younger, more liberal audiences, we've pegged them to the parks and recreations over and over again, right? And therefore yeah. the, the jokes tend to take on that sort of knowing, winking, satiric format. That is the, the complete sort of opposite formally of what you see with this now kind of lumbering dinosaur of a multi-cam sitcom in uh, Last Man Standing. Yeah, and I don't even need to watch the show to tell you that, you know, the title of the show, Last Man yeah. Standing, what's the premise? It's about an old-fashioned guy and his whole family and uh, the world around him is changing and gender roles are shifting and he's the last old-fashioned man. It's right there in the title, what the project is. Um, so that's a really obvious one, but, I, you know, I've always felt... Uh, th here's my own version of it. When people used to say there's no such thing as conservative comedy, well... I always feel like when you look at stand-up comedy, very simple example, that liberal or progressive comedy is the comedy that's saying like, hey, why does the world have to be this way? The world yeah. is, why do we have to do things the old-fashioned way? Can't we do things a little bit differently? Why is this? 
And conservative comedy is the comedy that goes, why has everyone got to change everything all the yeah. time? Weren't things nice before? Like, come on. Oh, everyone's, why is everyone so heated? Just chill out and have a Coke and, you know, go to sleep. Uh, and those are like two very basic comedic mm -hmm. standpoints towards the world, anger at the status quo or defense of the status quo. Um, mm -hmm. And those that's something that when I look at comedy, I can sort of see a deeper political undercurrent in it, even if the comedian itself is not going out there trying to like support right wing or left wing causes. I'm like, I think I can. I think you're sort of pushing forward a very deep political undercurrent in your work do you do you find that at all or no yeah no i i think that's that's uh absolutely right and i mean that can bleed over into more overt political ideas um you know there can be comedians who are a little bit tough to place politically if you just sort of just look at content but the kind of things you're describing if it come out you know like a bill burr type character where the way that he does his comedy is very much to me sort of throwback and there's like a suspicion of certain elements of changing society you know uh whether or not you want to call it conservative or not depends on you know are you looking for a consistency uh or just sort of a feel right so i think you can you can find that in certain places you can also of course find the like uh, railing against change in uh, comedians who are much more overtly political. So you can look at like a Steven Crowder or, or these sorts of, of characters uh, who, and this is one, you know, say what defines conservative comedy. Uh, I think this sort of less easily pinpointed stuff you're talking about is very much true. There's also sort of these areas that they get into, right? So transgender stuff, right? Uh, in our book, we're constantly coming across characters who want to talk about that as a, a way of sort of railing against change, right? And attitudes regarding mm -hmm. gender. And so, you know, that can be done very subtly in ways that, that you might find, uh, you know, funny and, and interesting if it's a, a stand-up comedian working traditionally uh, or in some of these more extremist spaces online, uh, you can find it to sort of in a much more ugly version. But all with the idea of saying that, you know, yeah, there's this fundamental idea that we're going to mock change or we're going to sort of resist it in some sort of way and just sort of like how you're targeting that uh, impacts how the comedy comes out. Yeah, it's really interesting. And Burr is one of the most interesting comics to me for that reason, because he does play that role sometimes of like, whoa, whoa, yeah. whoa, everything's moving too fast for me. But yeah. also he's he's not uh, he's someone I have trouble getting a beat on in terms of that, because yeah, he's, for I, sure. I think, so good of a comic and has a, a genuinely, I think, a complex worldview. Um, yeah, but, I agree. OK, so, so the point I was trying to get to is that, you know, during the earlier period of the 2000s that we were talking about, when people were saying there was no such thing as conservative comedy, I always felt there was, but it was it was a little mm -hmm. bit hidden. It was a little bit underground. You know, you had the, the comics who maybe had conservative actual political viewpoints weren't really sharing them explicitly in the way that the liberal comedians were. Now I feel like that's no longer the case, and I'm assuming yeah. you do as well because you have a book. You wrote a book about it. So <laughs> talk me through how you know conservative or right wing comedy sort of came out of the shadows and became something that you know you now have uh, just straight up pro Trump comedians who are stand up comics and are touring, and then they've got in the middle of their set they've got 20 minutes of hey isn't Trump great material? Um, <laughs> how do you uh, how did that change come about? Yeah, so the, the central structuring metaphor of the, the book is that of a complex, like a mixed-use retail residential complex that might reside off the side of an interstate where there's like a mall and you know hmm. condos built on top of it. And the idea when you enter that space is to stay within it and have as many of your needs satisfied as possible. It's got a, a, a big box store. It's got a, you know, a bar. It's got a restaurant later on. So Greg Gutfeld and Fox News represents the, the Walmart or Target, the anchor store of this retail complex. 
any conservative comedy fan can go there and generally have that scratch itched, right? They get the headlines, they get him riffing with uh, politicians and other conservative comedy guests, and then he throws to the rest of the Fox News schedule, whether that's uh, Tucker or whoever else. Then you move on to somebody like uh, Joe Rogan, who's the more sort of down and dirty, you know, late night crowd, right? He's, he's uh, getting high with his guests. He's taking them into more sort of libertine, libertarian spaces where the traditional sort of old school conservative uh, ethos doesn't apply as much. So Rogan is very much targeting the next generation of conservative comedy fans and uh, Republican voter base, right? That's uh, sort of Republican coalition as it ages needs to replenish its ranks. And Rogan is a great spokesperson for the sort of younger male, maybe politically ambivalent um, uh, future voter who likes what this guy has to say about drug legalization, but he thinks pronouns are bullshit too, man. Like, why can't we just sort of identify uh, according to the, the, the normal way of doing things? So our point is that these folks hang out together in the same media space. They guest on one another's shows. Uh, uh, Rogan has had many of the people we talk about throughout the book on as guests, whether that's Stephen Crowder or Gavin McInnes. Gavin McInnes also is a regular on Greg Gutfeld's show or was before he landed this uh, week nightly show. So the, the connection we try to make is that um, you can find any number of entry points into this world of right-wing comedy, but once you're there, you'll inevitably move on to the next thing. It's very good at moving you to these other sorts of, mm -hmm. uh, whether it's old school comedy and paleo, whether it's something more libertarian leaning in Joe Rogan, or as we get to at the end of the book, the truly nasty, evil, fascist adjacent podcasters that, uh, don't appear on any sort of normal cursory Google. And, and I think to, to sort of uh, identify exactly the change there, right, it's again back to that, that idea of new media outlets, that in order to, uh, you know, the, the, the pre-existing, before we talk about the era of, you know, streaming video, podcasts, YouTube, et cetera, right, then there's a, a few structuring institutions, central institutions through which you become a famous, viable media comic. I mean, the touring comic's a little bit different, but basically you're trying to get on SNL, uh, you're trying to become a, a correspondent on The Daily Show, you're trying to uh, get on to, uh, uh, you know, stand-up specials, uh, you do, do a spot on, on uh, Late Night, these sorts of things. For a long time, that was how you became a known, viable, uh, sort of uh, real professional comic, at least in the media sense. Uh, and those institutions had sort of structuring things and, and their own politics to them. And it was not as open to sort of overtly open right-wing spaces. The era of new media uh, that Nick just described through this complex metaphor has these different entry points, which are far less gate-kept. I don't know if that's the right way to say it, but the, mm -hmm. the gatekeeping function of it is much lower. Uh, what you have is these smaller, and they don't have nearly the reach, this podcast, these, these YouTube channels, uh, but they have significant, if smaller, reaches, uh, and they're desperate for content, and they're desperate to be a brand, right? To be a certain kind of political comedy. Uh, and so... Uh, you know, you can get an entry point through these smaller spaces. You don't have to get on to uh, Johnny Carson, right? You can become a, uh, you know, a person who guest hosts on Steven Crowder's show or, or something along these lines, these sort of smaller but starving for content and not, you know, not insignificant podcasts. That gives an opportunity for people to develop brands on the right side of the political spectrum in an open and overt way, whereas I think they would be more likely in the era of, you know, sort of big mainstream media to hide some of those conservative leanings uh, and not go overt with them, you know, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think what you're saying is that the 
liberal media complex that, you know, conservatives used to rail against uh, was real, Mm -hmm. (laughs) at least as far as comedy is concerned, that, you know, you had a situation in the mid 2000s where you had very overtly liberal political comedy that was like, you know, complex and interesting. And and, uh, I enjoyed watching, but was also like it was very overt about its political aims and, and what it was trying to get across. To a certain extent, I mean, I mean, John Stewart very much was like, "Hey, I'm just the average Joe here," you know, mm-hmm. and and was very much against extremism a- along all sides, um, which is something we could go into further detail about. But you, uh, you know, a, a, a person like the folks like you're describing couldn't like do overtly political right wing comedy and expect to get on television. It had to be cloaked yeah. a bit. It had to be, um, I think, about like a, like a Nick DiPaolo, who's a comic yeah. who is uh, a. I believe a, a vocal conservative. Um, yeah. But, you know, if you watch his comedy from 2006, he wasn't uh, he wasn't like overtly talking about those things on stage because mm-hmm. that wasn't the sort of thing that would play well in the larger media ecosystem that you needed to make a living. And now that all the gatekeepers have come down, or at least many of them have come down, now we have new gatekeepers that are algorithmic largely, whether you end up in the YouTube comments or whatever, or in the YouTube uh, recommendations or the TikTok uh, algorithm, uh, et cetera, but, uh, that those gatekeepers no longer exist in quite the same way. And so it's allowed people to be themselves in a way that they were not able to before. Do you feel that's accurate? Yeah. Be themselves or either, either be themselves or brand themselves in ways that mm. gives them their own lane and space. I mean, DePaulo is a great example, right? Cause yeah, he, he did operate almost entirely in sort of the mainstream, comedy world, late night shows, Comedy Central. Uh, but, you know, he went on to, you know, eventually just release his stuff straight to YouTube. And you can see a political difference, right? Um, when it doesn't yeah. have to go through that that space. Um, so, you know, I think some of it absolutely, a guy like DePaulo, not that I know him personally, but you get a sense that, he, you get a sense that he was like white knuckling this the whole time, right? Like he wanted to be more <laughs> conservative, right? And, and he was holding back. Yeah. I want to say there are exceptions to this. Like, yeah. you know, the, the show, for instance, Tough Crowd with Colin Quinn. Um, yeah. You know, yeah, I, sure. uh, I, I did not watch that show religiously when it was on. But, you know, Mark Marin has since talked about how, you know, this was like right after the right after 9-11 and the yeah. Iraq war years. And he was like, I'm the token liberal on a show that is like largely pretty conservative and, yep. you know, was like in favor of those things. But it wasn't it's even if you go back and watch that show, it wasn't as blunt as like no. The Daily Show was at the time, no. even for though. Sure. Oh, it was like sort of a home for political. Co- there was also, by the way, talk radio stuff like Opie and Anthony, Howard yeah. Stern, adjacent comedy, that kind of thing. Um, but it does feel like there's been a shift and it's because we have new forms of media on the Internet that that it has. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Nick, do you want to take that? Or? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the old school channels that Matt was uh, referencing earlier that were gatekept are no longer as a, a, a prominent a way for comedians to break into to media so that now conservatives have their own institutions, maybe not on par in terms of pure viewership as SNL and The Daily Show, but in rallying a, a, a voting base, a, an audience base of like-minded folks behind them so that they can go to all these other shows. They can say, check out uh, my appearance on such and such podcast. They're very good, again, at sort of moving people around this sort of um, interconnected space and finding new and the next uh, comedy product that your algorithm brings up to your feed. That's really fascinating. Well, we got to take one more really quick break. We'll be right back with more Nick and Matt. (laughs) 
We're back with Nick and Matt uh, talking about right wing and left wing comedy. So let's end by talking about like really where are we today? Like what do you guys think is most remarkable or most worrying about the state of comedy today on this sort of hyperactive algorithm driven audience siloed new media environment mm-hmm. we're in? I mean, I currently am trying to make my way through it, right? I, I went mm-hmm. from being, uh, you know, on cable TV and on Netflix, <laughs> you know, during the week when Netflix's audience is suddenly cratering um, and mm-hmm. trying to figure out like, okay, what do I, should I be on YouTube? Here I am on my podcast, oh, make it blah, 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 blah. It's like a very, it's a strange new world that we're in. Um, and what is most notable about it for you guys in terms of where comedy is at? Yeah, I mean, so it's really interesting on that one level, at least maybe maybe not if you're in it. If you're making a living, it sounds very uh, nerve-inducing. Uh, but to study, it's, it's an interesting <laughs> moment i mean if if there's going to be worrisome elements it's the uh insistence and it's understandable from an economic perspective in these algorithmic spaces uh, towards pushing things towards extremes uh and and Mm. pushing away from consensus media towards fracturing media right Uh, getting engagement uh you know that the best viewer is the one who really agrees with it and the next best viewer is the one who really hates it and anybody who's sort of in the Mm. middle is not not that valuable Whereas if you go way back in time, if you go back to like, you know, the the television, the network era, right? It was all in the middle. Nobody loved it. Nobody hated it. Everybody watched it, right? (laughs) And now you've got this thing where it's pushing towards those. uh, And, you know, you know, you know, part of what we talked about is the opportunity for conservative comics uh, to now express themselves. But there's also just a drive to pick that lane. People who might be more, you know, I don't want to say centrist, like, but just sort of not, not, not divisive. Right. There's a, a, yeah. a, a, an incentive to drive towards divisiveness. Sometimes that can point to really ugly spaces, which, you know, we may or may not want to talk about. But at the very least, uh, you know, somebody who uh, has the talent to speak broadly might not have the opportunity to speak broadly uh, with their comedy and therefore has to pick sort of a specific lane or angle, uh, which I think could be uh-huh. a big loss. Yeah, that the sort of I think of like Brian Regan as the sort of like mainstream comic mm. par excellence to use your example earlier that he's a, he's a guy who you can see that he tries to play in literally every single room in the country and he's very successful at it. Um, and he's extremely funny. He's one of the funniest comics working today. But I've also seen him sort of struggle with that a little bit mm. as media gets more. Uh, you, you know, yeah, more extreme, more pushing in one direction or the other, it becomes more difficult to do comedy in that way. And I've also seen comics who I know, uh, I've seen the audience start to push them in one direction or the other. I've seen yeah. them start to change what they're saying because of what they're getting in their in their, uh, in their their Twitter replies or, you know, even better, what people are telling them on their Patreon subscriptions. Even I have a Patreon mm-hmm. subscription now, right? And uh, I, I now, you know, now people send me messages and they say, hey, I'm a little, I don't know if I like that thing that you said. This hasn't actually happened to a great extent. Mm-hmm. But, you know, uh, if a patri- if a if a supporter of mine on Patreon messages me and says, hey, I didn't like that joke, that, or, you know, you know what is really funny is when you do X, Y, Z, that means a lot more to me than when an audience member used to do it at like a 500-person theater, you know? Um, and uh, I've seen that happen to other uh, I've seen that happen to other comics as well. I've seen people start to sort of like get pushed towards one lane or another. And, you know, there's a lot of like chit chat in green rooms about like, are, is this comic doing that on purpose or are they just being sucked in by the audience? Do they really feel this way or are they just doing what, you know, generates uh, subscriptions or what? Uh, it's a really interesting trend that hadn't really existed before. Yeah, I 
Adam, I love the way you put that, that the audience is sort of pushing comedians to those same extremes that Matt just identified. So I think what you're talking about there is the economic incentive no longer exists to, to rest in the middle. Mm. You're being pushed by the money and by the audience to either extreme ideologically. The other thing that I've noticed about uh, comedy trends is that this is where we go to do our politics now. Because so much of our sort of activist efforts, our representatives are not able to accomplish anything you know, substantial or material that makes a difference to many people's lives, we turn to culture in order to fight and resolve our ideological differences. And we're only just grappling with what it means that comedy is one of those primary areas that we're doing it, right? So we've had like different cultural forms where people are expressing themselves politically, but for the longest time, as we've been talking about for two decades, we assumed that comedy was this purely liberal space now we're having a whole sort of entrance of uh, folks who disagree with that principle, who are uh, feel free to message you to say like, hey, I don't like those jokes. I'm going to push you a little bit more into this direction. And I think that's a cycle we're going to continue seeing as we approach, especially election cycles coming up in the midterms and, and certainly in 24. Well, so let me ask this then, because we uh, this I think this is a good discussion to have towards the end of this, because. We were talking earlier about like what was the actual political force of the mid 2000s, John Stewart, Tina Fey political satire. And this feeling that many have is like, oh, that was that was it just generated a lot of smugness and it wasn't actually political action, et cetera, et cetera. But we're also talking about how, hey, this, you know, the, the rise of right wing comedy is seems politically powerful. Um, and so what do you feel in your research is the actual political impact of comedy, if any? Can comedy actually move the political needle in a big way? And if so, how and why? Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's a great question. It's one that you're never going to get a 100 percent you're sure of an answer to. No, um, you're going to give me one right now. You're going to give me a really definite answer. I can 17. tell. I feel it. Yeah, no, but, I'll, but nonetheless, <laughs> uh, nonetheless, no, but, but I, I do think there's ways in which we can, we can see it. I mean, for one, I, I mean, I don't think as much as we look back on that Stuart uh, era and see its flaws, uh, you know, I mean, John Stewart was the leader of the Democratic Party for all intents and purposes in, in the mm -hmm. in the early 2000s. Uh, nobody wanted to go to a John Kerry rally, right? But people went to uh, these John Stewart events in like giant numbers. And, you know, yeah. I, 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 I'm, I, you know I think it, it was impactful in, in certain ways. Uh, the ways in which I think right-wing comedy uh, can be impactful, and I think we see, we see evidence, at least early evidence that it is, uh, is on a couple of levels. Uh, one uh, has to do with what you might call uh, coalition building. Uh, any... Any, especially in a two-party system, right? Any coalition of, of whether it's voters or just sort of citizens who uh, align along the two parties, there's going to be a lot of contradictions within one party. And you know, the the American right has this in, in obvious ways. Uh, you've got these sort of free market libertarian types. You've got Christian values conservative types. You've got sort of libertine uh, uh, nationalist Trumpy types. And, and on the one hand, you say like, well, how do these people get together? Right, like they 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 shouldn't agree on much. But if you go through the stuff we, we we look at in the book, you'll find the way out there libertarian, totally sort of amoral kind of guy on the Christian conservative Babylon B podcast. And mm -hmm. on one level, you'd be like, what what do these people have to say to each other? But comedy brings them together, right? Part of it's just mm. making fun of the libs brings them together, and we can go across. Yeah the paleo comedy guy versus the the troll online right what do they, they don't have a lot to say to each other but they can 
sort of come together and make fun of the libs. So that, that's part of it is kind of binding this coalition. Um, and, you know, ideally, I mean, Stuart might have done some of that on the left, too. It's sort of a different question. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, right. center left people all the way to people who later right. would vote for Bernie Sanders were John Stewart fans, even right. though Stewart himself had his own political position. Uh, yeah. It brought pe- everybody got to make fun of the I don't know the Rick Perry's of the world together. Right. 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 So that, that's the first thing. Right. Is bringing that together. Yeah, the other thing that right-wing comedy does, in addition to sort of papering over the ideological differences among the right-wing coalition, is it recruits young men. Mm-hmm. So there's a long history between media channels like Comedy Central targeting young men with their their shows, right? This sort of 18 to 34-year-old demographic with disposable income, and they're driving the conversation on taste and fashion and music and everything else. That sort of lingering association still applies today, and it's being used by these more sort of uh, adventurous, offensive, aggressive forms of libertarian humor from folks like Joe Rogan and the Legion of Skanks, these, uh, these podcasts that have a solidly young male listenership. They bring them in, and they introduce them to more maybe sort of mainstream right-wing political causes. So for the longest time, if we think of uh, John Stewart as being able to attract that kind of young uh, liberal into the, the the Democratic voting base, I think we're going to see that same thing happening with right-wing comedy where you get like our 18-year-old college students, they show up in our classrooms and they say their favorite podcast is Joe Rogan. That's a possibility to kind of attract and retain them to future sort of conservative and, and right-wing political causes. Yeah, I'm always curious though how many of those people who listen to those podcasts actually get a political message from it, right? Mm. A lot of people who enjoy... Uh, look, pe- people from all across the political spectrum do enjoy Joe Rogan. No, for sure. Uh, and that that is sort of what I'm curious about is how how comedy affects people's individual political beliefs as well. I think what you're talking about, the social function of it is absolutely true. But I also think about, you know, when you uh, when I think about my own emotions, how I felt watching Jon Stewart when I was 17 years old, I was like, oh, this is a guy who I like generally. I trust him. I find him funny. He's making fun of something. What is the inherent, like, you know, truth value of making fun of someone? What is the argument that is being made when you're making fun of someone? It's they're wrong and I'm right, right? I'm a normal person. They're a weird person. Normal people think this. Weird people think that. And is so it's sort of like a deep normalization of a particular worldview that I can think that sort of like slips in sometimes. Like, mm-hmm. you know, John Stewart is there making fun of uh, well, I forget who he's making fun of Sarah Palin, and he's also making fun of Dennis Kucinich, right? Who who he sort of always portrayed as a as a loony lefter, you know, yelling and like, okay, yeah, I'm the I'm a normal guy. I'm not one of those weirdos. Um, and it's sort of a it's why people talk about comedy making people smug because it sort of ends up being dismissive of, of the people who are being made fun of. Um, but that also strikes me as like, it can create a sort of deep political identification with a certain mm. in-group and a certain out-group that like, I'm, I'm a normal person, everyone else is weird. I feel like that's an emotion that comes mm. from stand-up. Does that, does that track for you at all or no? You're scholars, I'm just doing this off the top of my head. Yeah, no, I think it, I think it does. Um, you know, the diffuse nature of, of the media now makes it harder than looking at Stuart. Stuart, you could sort of break down exactly how he said something. He had a big audience. You could sort of break it down. Now you have to look mm-hmm. at connections. I mean, Rogan's a tricky one, right? Because I, I don't know what his personal politics are, but what, what he is more than anything is a collector of, of young male demographics, particularly uh, mm-hmm. young men who tend 
to not want to identify with mainstream sort of political and cultural ideas. But if you look at his guest list, yeah, he has people across the spectrum, but there's more that I would, I think it's quite clear that the sort of the, the larger gateway, there might be a gateway in both directions. The larger one is more towards Jordan Peterson world. And, and I think that that's mm-hmm. fairly clear. You can look at it mathematically or just sort of see what makes the news for him. Um, he's a complicated guy in and of himself. But that world, I think, does have exactly what you're talking about. Uh, and that's what you would call sort of a, a, a mocking of wokeism. Right. Whether or not you like that mm-hmm. term or you can accept that term. Right. Uh, the, the if there's a thing that connects the Christian conservative and the and the libertarian and the Jordan Peterson listener and all this, uh, it's that these people on the left are crazy because they're worried about pronouns. Right. They're crazy because uh, they're concerned about uh, the names of sports teams being offensive or these sorts of things. Right. And they're very much positioning themselves on the right as the sane people who see that we shouldn't worry about these things, that this is a, uh, you know, sort of a, 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 a lunacy on the left. Right. In a way that, again, I'm not going to make a I'm not making a moral comparison. I'm making sort of a strategy comparison that just like like Stuart wanted to normalize a certain centrism, center leftism as, as being sort of sane and everything else being aberrant, right? They want to, on the right, uh, through these different places, a lot of which are comedy, uh, they want to say that there's a, a certain sane view of the world and, uh, you know, the stuff that, that they're able to, you know, associate with the left, uh, with concerns over race and anti-racism, concerns over uh, transphobia, these things are aberrant and weird and the normal people are going to be on the other side of it. So I think you're exactly right. I think it's doing that, but instead of one voice giving it to you, it's sort of this this sort of like like buffet of of people giving it to you in different flavors. Right. So well, let's let's end here. Uh, we talked a lot about this sort of mistaken impression about comedy that a lot of people in the media had um, in the mid two thousands. Um, and, uh, I honestly think a lot of comedians also had a mistaken impression of like what comedy does, what it's for. Uh, and so to me, the rise of right-wing comedy is very clarifying that like it, it teaches us something about what comedy is and what its possibilities are. That's actually broader than what I thought and what many people thought in the mid two thousands. Um, you know, the idea that comedy has an inherent liberal bias, I think we, probably agree is not true at this point. Um, but what, what can we say that comedy is instead? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like what, what new insight can we get about comedy from that rise that might allow us to talk about it more productively or even practice it more productively? Do you have any advice for me as a comedian <laughs> that, that I can, that I can use to, to, to improve my success and earnings in the difficult comedy marketplace of 2022? I think, uh, I'll answer that that first really uh, boringly by saying it, it's a it's a form of interpersonal communication first and foremost. Mm. We're studying it in the book as a sort of media phenomenon, as something that drives media economics and political decisions. But you know that being uh, as a stand-up comedian, as somebody who likes to joke with their friends, that it's a way to form a bond with someone else mm-hmm. or a way to form a sort of uh, enemy out of someone else, right? By joking at them and getting people on your side. I think we very quickly lose that sort of formal playfulness that's inherent in the comedy form itself when we get so wrapped up in whether or not Andrew Schultz or whatever is, you know, doing the new right-wing Jon Stewart thing. So it's a very quick way of making friends or making enemies on a very local level, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I I would add to that just, uh, you know, uh, Nick used the word playfulness. And there is, you know, um, 
and then sometimes it's hard to say about some of this right wing stuff because some of the morality of it's so ugly. Uh, but they have a don't give a damnness about them, uh, a a a playfulness which is very attractive to people and has also doesn't have a right or left wing orientation, right? Uh, you know, sort of being being willing to to uh, try it in a different way, not worrying about offending if you know that what you're doing is not you know is not in any is not if if you know that your intentions are right, being able to to give yourself some extra space and not you know be self censorious. Uh, not worry about what every negative response you might get would be. I think we would say that the left has developed a tendency towards being very worried about what, you know, the unintended consequences of, of humor, right? And humor is full of unintended consequences. Um, you know, being playful as long as you're confident that what you're doing is, is you know, in some sort of positive direction, whatever that is. I think that, you know, the the right-wing comedy world doesn't worry about stuff and they benefit from that. Uh, I'm not saying to become an amoralist, but I'm saying that there can be a tendency today to be really worried about how every single person is going to take something. I think that's a non-sustainable way of doing comedy. I think if your intentions are in the right way, you know, playfulness and adventurousness, and even if you step on a toe or two is the only way to get by uh, and do both interesting comedy and reach that audience authentically. I love that message. The only problem for me is as someone who tries to understand what comedy does, <laughs> then I, I and I don't believe it's value neutral. I believe that comedy does do things in the world. Mm -hmm. Then when I'm doing comedy and someone tells me, hey, wait, this comedy, it might be doing X, Y, Z that could be hurting people. It's hard for me not to go, OK, well, I want to I don't want <laughs> right. to. I don't want my comedy to do that, you know, but at the same time, I absolutely agree with you. I mean, the spirit of comedy, I think one of the deeper things that it does is it has a, I don't give a shit feel to yeah. it. It has a, you know, there's just a little inherent fuck you that this is, yeah. you know, this is what I'm going to say and you can't stop me. And why would you? And you know, uh, this is, we're, we're having fun here. I think that's an essential piece of it. And those two things are like difficult to balance sometimes. And I'm probably just making myself less funny just by even talking about this right now. Yeah. <laughs> No. <laughs> because I should be saying, well, fuck you guys. Who cares what you think? <laughs> like, this is funny to me. Uh, but no, here so I am. I'm the type of comedian who talks to two professors about, like, what comedy is and does politically, uh, mm. which, I don't know, maybe I'm hamstringing myself just by having this podcast episode right now. I don't know what you think. Uh, you should have us on every week is what I know. No. Uh, <laughs> until until we sell out of books, at least, you should have us on every week. Um <laughs> Look, I mean, there's different styles of comedy and, you know, you're interested in, in being analytic about it is like great for us. It's really interesting for, for us. And I, I don't think these are I think these are not uh, these things are not in contradiction. Right. You can study something and then come to the conclusion that, OK, what I've learned is how in some ways to let go of things. Right. Uh, doing analysis is not doesn't have to be a, a you know, a way to paralyze yourself. Um yeah, I mean, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, yeah, what, what can I say? Um, part of your brand is being somebody who is thoughtful for sure, and that's important. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's like the, that's where it jumps from, from that point forward. Once you've, once you've come up with the thing that you are wanting to say, I do think worrying about uh, its ramifications across, I mean, that's part of the problem with the, with the replies, right? With the comments, you know, I mean, right. you know, you used to get them in very broad strokes. Did people come yeah, to the, the show? Yeah, the whole audience all at once. Did they laugh, right? Did they come to the next show? Um, you know, I mean, everybody does this. We get teaching evaluations, right? You'll get 99, it's great, and one, like, you know, why Why is, he, why is, he, why is, why is his voice so weird? Or whatever. You'll just think about why, why your voice was so weird for the entire you, – you, you know, <laughs> too much feedback is deadly, right? Um, and so I think one thing I would uh, – I, I would think – 
would be helpful would just be the idea that think about how you know the broader strokes forms of feedback were so useful and maybe put those in contrast to this micro feedback that we get today uh particularly yeah. when it's about people being offended it's comedy is going to step on toes if you don't mean to hurt you got to give yourself some space yeah Oh, that is, ex- that is extremely good advice. And you know what? I need to hear that before I go, go do my upcoming dates in Nashville, mm. Spokane, Washington, Tacoma, Washington. Tickets available at adamconver.net slash short dates. <laughs> um, well, I can't thank you guys enough for coming on the show. This has been fascinating for me as a comic. The book is called That's Not Funny. You can get it, I assume, wherever you get books or at our special bookshop, factuallypod.com slash books. Uh, thank you guys so much for coming on the show. No, thanks for having us, Adam. Thank you. Well, thank you once again to Matt Sinkowitz and Nick Marks for coming on the show. If you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did, check out their book, That's Not Funny, at factuallypod.com slash books. And join our Patreon at patreon.com slash adamconover, where you can get every episode of this show ad-free. I want to thank our producer, Sam Roudman our engineer Kyle McGraw, and everybody who supports this show on Patreon at the $15 a month level. That's Adrian, Alexi Batalov, Allison Liparato, Alan Liska, Anne Slagle, Antonio LB, Aurelio Jimenez, Beth Brevik, Camus and Lego, Charles Anderson, Chase Thompson Bow, Chris Staley, Courtney Henderson, David Condry, David Conover, Drill Bill, Dude with Games, Ethan Jennings, Hillary Wolken, Jim Shelton, Julia Russell, Kelly Casey, Kelly Lucas, Lacey Tiganoff, Lisa Matulis, Mark Long, Miles Gillingsrud, Mom Named Gwen, Mrs. King Coke, Nicholas Moore, Morris, Nikki Batelli, Nuyagik Ippoluk, Paul Mauk, Paul Schmidt, Rachel Nieto, Richard Watkins, Robin Madison, Ryan Shelby, Samantha Schultz, Sam Ogden, Spencer Campbell, Susan E. Fisher, Tyler Darach, and Whiskey Nerd 88. Thank you, of course, to Andrew WK for our theme song, the fine folks at Falcon Northwest for building me my incredible custom gaming PC. You can go check them out at Falcon Northwest. Um, my, you can find me online at adamconover.net or at adamconover wherever you get your social media. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next time on Factually. I don't know Stop it, a, podca- <clears throat> a podcast network.